0: Hello, hello, everyone. You are now tuning into Frida's World Podcast, a platform where women of color can have open, honest, and candid discussions about our experiences being professional women in this 21st century. It's your girl, Rita Pierre, your host, CEO, and founder of Frida Women NYC, a fashion brand that sets out to motivate and instill confidence in professional women through the use of fashion accessories. So if you're looking for ways to enrich your life, enhance your personal skills, or hell, if you're looking to just have a good laugh, grab a big glass of something and join on in. This week's Freedom Woman of the Week is Harriet Jacobs. Harriet Jacobs was born into slavery in North Carolina. She ultimately escaped and was later freed. She chronicled her experiences in *Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, which became the first autobiography published by a female former slave. Her book described the sexual exploitation that added to the oppression of slavery for black women, a topic that is still not widely discussed. After publishing her book, Jacobs remained actively involved with the abolition movement, using her celebrity to raise money for former slaves. So, as Black History Month comes to an end, today being February 28th, the last Wednesday of February, the last day of Black History Month, we just want to take this time to reflect on all of our um, Freedom Women of the Week for the month of February, women that were deemed. Forgotten women, women who, you know, don't um, come to mind when you think of Black History Month and contributions, such as Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman. But these women um, that we honored these last few weeks were women who have contributed greatly to the society, um, greatly to the Black experience, and greatly to the female women empowerment movement. And we just definitely wanted to take um, these last few weeks to just remember them and to highlight them. Um, Many of these women I didn't know anything about um, until we did the research and decided to highlight them as Freedom Women of the Week. So I definitely charge each and every one of you to continue learning, to continue, um, you know, searching, um, and just keeping up to date with who we are as a people and educating ourselves on how great we truly are. All right. So I am here with the illustrious Yasmin Duidar Esquire. Yasmin say hello. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Yasmin and I, we kind of go way back to like what two thousand seven, right? Actually, I think it no, was. Two th-
1: I joined later, actually.
0: No, when no, not the office. Remember Pipeline? You keep oh, forgetting. <laughs>
1: wow, we do go back. To you
0: keep forgetting. We had a break in the relationship, obviously, but two thousand seven, I believe, is the year we started Pipeline. Right. And for those of you who don't know what Pipeline is, it was this kind of uh, what exactly? It, it was like a program to help you get into law school or. Okay.
1: For, for- I mean, I think the target was to kind of bring people from diverse backgrounds Mm -hmm. to law school. I mean, you kind of had to, I guess, feel the LSAT
0: to get into the (laughs) (laughs) program. Yeah. (laughs) Or not get the score that you wanted.
1: Right. Because they say that you can't feel the LSAT, but yeah, technically you can. Um, But it's really a pipeline, I think, that's aimed at getting people of color into law school, people who don't have, you know... uh, maybe mentors in their lives or access to resources to take LSAT prep and stuff like that. So they give you those resources. And, you know, without Pipeline, I couldn't have been... Lawyer
0: today. Yeah, no, same here, because I'm remembering like my journey trying to, you know, take the LSAT, not being happy with the score that I got. And then wondering, oh, you know, I still like I still had gotten into schools, but it, it was kind of like I didn't want to go all the way to Michigan or I didn't want to like go all the way to Louisiana or whatever, because I was applying like everywhere. So I did get into schools, but I really wanted to stay in, in New York. And when I applied the first time, I didn't get into any New York schools or I was like on a wait list for some. And it was just so then when the pipeline thing came, I don't even remember how I even heard about it. I think I was actually still waiting. And then when the pipeline thing happened, I'm like, I don't know what this is, but this seems interesting. (laughs) Um, You know, whatever I can do to kind of like help, you know, at that time I had my son. So I really wasn't at liberty to really say, oh, I'm moving, you know, to like, I don't know, Colorado to go to law school. But I think Pipeline definitely did have like a positive impact. You know, I was able to meet people and then just I think it brought the realities like people of color, people from just, you know, um, I don't know what, what to call this. But I mean, those who just don't have the means and don't have the access, it right. definitely I think, you know, it highlighted to me that, wow, we really don't have access um, to things like the prep course that we had and just information. Like my mom wasn't an attorney. Mm -hmm. My dad wasn't, I didn't have any attorneys in my, I think I'm the the first attorney or the only attorney still in my family. (laughs) So, you know, there's so many things that we didn't know. And, and it, it made, it made me feel good to know that it's not, it's not that I was not smart or that I wasn't, you know, bright. It was, had I had the same tools that maybe some of my counterparts had, I too, I too would be like, great. I would know how to like take tests. I was never a good test taker because I never knew how, never learned how to take tests. And I feel like if I had resources and like, you know, some of my friends, when they were younger, they had like all these SAT prep mm-hmm. courses, like, but I didn't have access to that stuff. And, you know, fast forwarding, you know, now trying to take the LSATs, like I'm not, it's not that I'm dumb mm-hmm. It's or or not as sharp. It's just that I never had these resources from before. I didn't grow up knowing how to make legal arguments or how to write or how to think in mm-hmm. a particular way. And-
1: I mean, according to the LSAT, we both never have made it through law school yeah. to pass the bar exam and guess what? Did both pass the first
0: Exactly. And
1: I mean, the rest is history from there. I mean, the, the places that I've gone since then, I just, I hate the LSAT because I don't think it's a, a measure of oppression, mm-hmm. intelligence or their ability to become lawyers because clearly we both became mm-hmm. accomplished lawyers. Too. Yes. We're very active in the legal community. We're making a difference um, in the community uh, and in people's lives. And so, I mean, honestly, all of those schools' losses.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I think that that's just definitely also something that's like a, on a positive note to those who are wanting to go into law school or any real form of like grad school and they are taking these exams for the first time and they're discouraged because they're being told that, well, if you couldn't pass it mm-hmm. or get a particular score, then that means that you're not meant to do this. You're not cut out for it. Mm-hmm. That's clearly not true because these exams, a lot of, a lot of times I feel like they're also culturally, culturally biased. Right, right. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: so, you know, the exam, is not the market. And what I see, I see the trend now is um, some law schools are actually giving students options to submit GRE or GMAT scores as opposed to... Yeah, yeah, as so opposed hard. to LSAT scores.
1: Unfortunately, I had great yes. <laughs> had scores at that time. I was like, what is this foreign exam? <laughs> it's testing things that I've never taken in life. What are games? What is Why this? <laughs> do Why do I have to pay to take a course to get into law school? An it's expensive not like course. MCAT, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you take pre-med. You are fam- you, you still have to prep in some way, but it's relevant.
0: You're familiar so, to like, the information. Yeah,
1: LSAT is totally foreign to any, to most of the education that I've yeah. in undergrad. And so... I just place no value on the LSAT. And, you know, as a result of the pipeline, what I do is I just give away information for free because I didn't have anybody there to support mm-hmm. me. Pipeline was the first program that came in and gave me the resources I needed to succeed on the LSAT and to get into law school, to get through law school. Um, and so now whenever I meet anyone, mm-hmm. I just give out advice for free and I tell them about my experiences so I can help direct them because there was nobody to direct me.
0: Exactly. Those
1: parents were immigrants, my parents were immigrants. We basically were just running into a bunch of walls until we figured it out. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, that's kind of how I am, too. Like uh, Eva, the woman who had done our actual Mm -hmm. um, prep course, till this day, I still refer people to her. Yeah, I still do. I'm like, I need to charge her something. Yes.
1: You got to give her a shout out. Definitely.
0: Definitely. I'm like, I need to be charging.
1: I'm a lawyer today because of
0: her. Yeah, seriously. I still give her information out because, you know, her program, true, like it, I feel like it was designed for people like, like us. Right. I think
1: she targets communities of color because she recognizes that there's a lack of diversity in the legal program. Yeah. And
0: that's why these pipeline programs are important. Yes. So that is where I met Yasmin Didar <laughs> for the first time, not knowing that years later, I would be working with her <laughs> at the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. And then we ended up in the same zone. Right. Um, zone. Or in zone. For life, maybe, I don't know, <laughs> if we're still saying all that. But um, it was definitely a, a, a good experience, I would say. Wouldn't you think that the office, I mean, it definitely gave you skills that you could now use and transfer to other, you know, positions. I feel like with me, I'm like, if I was able to survive that war I mean, zone.
1: <laughs> skills, And that was a skill set I didn't have at the time. I mean, prior to that, I worked in um, state court. Mm. Uh, it was a Supreme Court criminal term. Um, and then after that, I went to federal court and that was the steepest learning curve ever. I thought I had 25 PhDs by the time I was done <laughs> because we covered so many areas of law and it was civil and it was criminal. Um, and federal court was one of the greatest challenges, particularly because we kind of had to build it, chambers from the ground up. It mm-hmm. was a newly nominated federal okay. uh, judge. Uh, so that was a challenge, but it was great to be a part of the building process. Uh, but the district attorney's office was... It def- definitely gave me a unique skill set in the sense that yes, I gained litigation experience, but it really taught me to think on my feet. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever I was in the courtroom, I was just always impressed with what I could get done. Like managing a courtroom and all the hundreds of cases that are going on in one day when we were low on staff and just one person, and I could speed through cases. There was a time I was just throwing cases onto chairs because through <laughs> them really fast. Mm-hmm. By the time I was done, I was just like. I can't believe I ran a whole court part by myself, a single prosecutor in the courtroom. I definitely learned organization skills. Mm -hmm. Um, I learned how to interview witnesses. I learned how to um, connect with people. Um, What was unique from my perspective as a prosecutor was I was able to take what I had learned um, from my defense uh, clinics and seminars into my practice as an assistant district attorney. So like I would take the time to actually look over to see the human being that mm-hmm. we are prosecuting because they are human beings. And, you know, people say I'm a bleeding heart, but, and yes, I, yes, I am a bleeding heart, <laughs> um, but it's because I care about people. And, you know, I don't think jail is always the answer. And, you know, I think that there are alternatives to incarceration. And I brought that perspective with me because I had a defense background. Um, and I think, obviously people, um, at public defense offices and, uh, private attorneys appreciated what I brought to the table because I would be conscious of the fact that, okay, this is a case that we can dismiss. Let's get rid of the order of protection. Now we don't want somebody to be homeless. And I would call defense attorneys and they're like, um, nobody ever calls us to do this. Thank you. But that's what prosecutors should be doing Mm -hmm. generally. But I don't know if everybody has the same experience where they've had some defense work experience. They've worked with defendants. You know, I feel like a lot of prosecutors just go to prosecutors' clinics and they're they're just about throwing people in jail. They don't know what the consequences are. They've never sat with someone who may have been falsely accused Mm -hmm. or had a unique set of circumstances that, you know, led up to a, a criminal case. I think it's important to bring that to the table. And unfortunately, you know, not a lot of people come with that and I'm not sure, you know, what DA's offices have in terms of training, but I feel like it lacks that
0: perspective. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that, I mean, when I started off, I started off with the Domestic Violence Bureau. And I think that that taught me about um, settling cases in ways that did not involve, you know, jail. There were a lot of, you know, programs that I was introduced to, substance abuse programs, batters intervention programs. And it forced us to look and see like, what is the real issue that's caught? Like, what's the underlying issue, right? That's causing this particular action to happen. It's not to say you're just going to throw it out and say, "Oh, you know, you're fine." Like, yeah, you coupled it with maybe like, you know, a violation or a misdemeanor depending on the severity, but it allowed us to say, "Well, what else is going on here? Like, what's going on here and how do we fix that underlying or help treat that underlying issue so that you don't come back here again?"
1: Right, because a lot of these families don't want to be torn apart. They have issues that need to be worked on, mm-hmm. but they don't know where to turn to, and sometimes there are some cultural issues where they they don't understand something like therapy or, or mm-hmm. and they need therapy yeah um, and you know I come from a complicated family sometimes like, we all come from complicated families and you know we get into disagreements and things happen and if you love someone you know that separating yourself from them or having like an order of protection now or excluding them from from the home isn't always the answer, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes you just need to go to mediation. You need to uh, talk about your feelings, work things out. Maybe they need a course that they haven't mm-hmm. taken before. And so, yeah, I appreciate those programs um, that do exist. And that's kind of the mindset that I had, had even though I wasn't in mm-hmm. um, domestic violence, but. That's the mindset I had when when um, I was
0: working in the the zone. So we have both since left the office and went on to you know bigger, better, brighter, <laughs> brighter things. Um, so since leaving, like what what are you doing? What's going on? I also want to get into the fact that you've been listed in the two thousand seventeen Cranes list. Twenty
1: eighteen. Twenty eighteen. I don't know why I thought thought
0: twenty
1: seventeen. You but know, what? It-, it was they the article. Um, or the cranes issue came out in 2015.
0: Okay. November. Yes. That's and the date I that I saw.
1: Predicting the top lawyers of 2018. I was like, oh, it was
0: 2018 my year? They predicted it for me. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's out there for me this year? I don't know. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> what are the t- was it top 100?
1: I think it was, I believe it was top 100 female um, attorneys in New York City.
0: Yeah. And so, guys, obviously, that's a really big title. So, we want to get into that a little bit. But, I mean, what, so since leaving the office, what, you know, what did what have you been doing?
1: I mean, uh, I guess the biggest and best change for me was that, you know, I ended up going to a New York City agency where they appointed me to be a supervising attorney. Um, and that's a big deal at my age, uh, because I'll let you know how. Old
0: how old are I'm. you? How old are you? I'm
1: 32. OK. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like 32 and it's really hard to find yourself in supervisory positions that yep, mm-hmm. usually it's maybe 35 and up. Um, when I was at the district attorney's office, I well, anywhere that I've been, I knew that I would want to be in a leadership role. And at the district attorney's office, I had my eye on a supervisory rule. And usually the first step is um, supervising attorney of criminal court. Mm-hmm. But I knew the average number of years that you had to wait was like six to seven years to get there. Mm-hmm. Getting this position basically shaved off four years and gave me... A supervisory position And In this particular job They also give you training Mm -hmm. um, With respect to supervision So that's beneficial uh, To me So I'm finally a boss On some level (laughs) But you know what I
0: feel Now that you're You know Talking about being a boss I feel like you've Always been a boss because did you not found the uh, Muslim Bar Association? Well, not the Muslim Bar Association. Which what is it? The Arab American. The okay, guys, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> the Arab American Bar Association, yeah. uh, which is a big deal to be like the founder of an organization, a bar association at that. So, I mean, I know we're jumping all over the place here, but let's talk about that.
1: Well, uh, to talk about that, we need to talk about how when I first uh, became an attorney and I started working for the judge that I worked for in Supreme Court, she took me to the Puerto Rican Bar Association. I had no desire to join Bar Association, so it just sounded lame to me at the time. Mm-hmm. Very wrong guys, joined Bar Association.
0: Yeah, seriously, connections.
1: She took me to the Puerto Rican Bar Association and the first event, I think it was a judicial event, and basically the room was packed with judges from the lowest courts to the highest courts in New York state and even from outside of New York state and politicians. And I just looked around the room and I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm in a room with so many powerful people Mm -hmm. and people were so friendly and so nice. And they were willing to be my mentor. And I'm like, I just met you. Like, you just want to help me. And I was surrounded by people of color. And that was just so different because, you know, the legal profession is predominantly white. And so to be in a space that was filled with people of color who were highly accomplished, who were just willing to offer you their time mm-hmm. and their help for you to succeed in your legal career, I was like, wow, this is extraordinary. And I thought to myself, well, this doesn't really exist right now in the Arab community. I don't have something like that to go to. I loved being an honorary Latina, though. So I was like, I'm going to be a Puerto Rican. So, <laughs> member our association and people would come up to me and they would talk, you know, about how, like, they would start talking in Spanish, and they would look at me and talk about their experiences as Puerto Ricans, and look at me to like agree with mm-hmm. that. I'm like, oh no, no, I'm I'm Egyptian and Filipino, but I love Puerto Ricans, and I love being an honorary Puerto Rican. So <laughs>
0: nice shout out to the oh, Boriquas.
1: <laughs> yes, shout out. Um, but uh, so when I when I saw all of that power in one room, I was just like, this should exist for the Arab American community. And I knew that there was a Muslim Bar Association, mm-hmm. and they're a great organization too. Do a lot of great work. Um, But I also thought it was important to distinguish between Arabs and Muslims. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, So the Muslim Bar Association, I mean, they're open to anyone joining, um, but obviously the focus is usually Muslim um, attorneys. With respect to Arab American attorneys, I mean, they could be any religion or no religion at all. It covers a different um, kind of uh, group. Um, But the Puerto Rican Bar Association is really what served as the inspiration because I thought to myself, yes, the American population in the um, legal profession, you know, is probably not as large or as powerful at this point, but the Puerto Rican Bar Association was at that point too. Mm-hmm. Sometime, I think it was in the 1960s, it was just a couple of lawyers that got together to start an organization. Fast forward like 60 years later, and it's this amazing, yeah. highly powerful organization. And I thought to myself, well somebody needs to start and fine. It could be small. And, you know, my bank account basically went to the whole bar. (laughs) Um, And I I just thought to myself, you know what? It would be nice to have something like this for the Arab American community. And a part of it was actually inspired by pipeline because I thought to myself, why did I have to fail first before somebody helped me? Mm -hmm. I appreciate pipeline, but I wish somebody had come in prior to help me succeed first. instead of Waiting for me to fail. Um, So when I kind of looked around at the Bar Associations, yes, they had scholarships for internships, but I thought to myself, well, let's talk about the biggest hurdle to getting into the legal profession, and that's the stupid LSAT. Yeah. And so my primary concern at the time was basically to bring pipeline into the Arab American Bar Association and to focus scholarships on the LSAT first. And then if we could fundraise maybe for internships and stuff like that. But there are a lot of organizations that exist for that, to help you with tuition in law school, to Mm help you um, uh, with uh, bar prep, for instance, uh, funding for that. Um, But there aren't, or at the time, actually, there weren't uh, programs in place uh, in bar associations to help students, for instance, tackle the LSAT. And so I thought to myself, let me call it Eva. <laughs> and she was just so generous. I mean we fundraised. Uh, we were able to enroll at least three students into her program, and she gave, she was definitely helpful in that she gave us like a discount. We'd fundraise for one. Um, and she'd gave, give us like another um, uh, class for free. And anytime I needed to consult with her, she would um, talk to me or she'd talk to the students mm-hmm. that um, came through the Bar Association. Um, and so it, it has been very helpful to the bar association and I think her, um, her programs are beneficial to those students, but I feel like it's one of the, at least the bar association, one of the first bar associations to offer LSAT prep.
0: Yeah. I don't think I've actually heard any of the organizations that I've, you know, been somewhat affiliated to.
1: I believe it was, I think the Metropolitan Black Bar Association now might have a program where they're trying to introduce LSAT
0: prep. But it's interesting though, because they've been powerful for a long time too. So to find like to to see that it's like not until now that any of that's really working mm-hmm. it I mean it's it almost begs the question did the arab American organization uh you know kind of you know what I mean kind of like lead the way and show because it's true I find that a lot of times you know you you're there for like the you know the end result but it's mm-hmm. like what about how do I get here because a lot of people of color struggle with this particular test and again it's not because we're not as smart but there are so many different factors that go into you know this test access, the test being just culturally biased in Mm -hmm. in and of itself. So I really, I I mean, with Haitian American Law Association, I'm hoping that maybe that's something we can, now that I'm talking to you about, it's like, oh, maybe we should try to implement something like that too. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we come across a lot of young people who are like aspiring attorneys who are like, oh, you know, I want to study for my LSAT or, you know, oh, I'm thinking about taking the LSAT, you know, and the best that I can do is like, well, I know Eva and <laughs> let me give you your information. But if we're able to create some sort of like pipeline-ish program, I think that that would be great too. I,
1: mean, I believe in Eva Lana's program, but like from the perspective of someone who's worked on a bar association, you can also use that um, to your advantage because guess what? Prep courses... Have an interest in offering mm-hmm. uh, courses to your organization, so you might even be able to get courses for free because it looks good for them. Yeah, to contribute to your organization because they can say that we're you know helping with diversity and the. Mm-hmm. And guess what? We need. There's still a long way to go. I know we have the Puerto Rican Bar Association. Um, I know that we have the Metropolitan Black Bar Association, the Arab Bar Association, Muslim Bar Association, but there's still a long, long way to go in the legal profession.
0: No, there, and really, there really is. And I, but, it's you know, it just takes people like you. Right. Getting like you. together. And Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't I didn't found my <laughs> bar association, but I definitely, you know, was part of leadership for a very long time. Um, I just, you know finished my presidency. Now I'm on the board, but it's it's just, it's really important. You know, the work that I think all the bar associations do, those that especially, um, focus on like, you know, specific like groups. Like I know I have um, a friend, Ifyak, who's, mm-hmm. you know, Nigerian right, right. Bar Association. So, you know, I, I think, and then I know the Caribbean, you know, um Lawyer Association Network. Like, so I feel like people are kind of getting like, you know, the hint, like we really need to kind of like, you know, focus on our particular groups and actually give back and uplift and, and whatnot.
1: I mean, I love the sense of community at mm-hmm. all of these bar associations. And I've been to a bunch of them and I've never felt, left out I've been to the South Asian Bar Association, not South Asian Puerto Rican
0: not Puerto Rican Metropolitan Black Bar yeah I signed mm-hmm. up I, I was actually part of the Asian slash Pacific Islander oh, been to too. yeah um, and I mean it's a little whatever I needed CLE credits uh-huh. and you know to join their membership it was like $40 mm-hmm. so I got all the CLEs I needed that year because you didn't have to pay for them and mm-hmm. once be, you were a member you had all the CLEs I don't know what was going on but I was like Short on CLEs for those who don't know, continuing legal education credits after you become a, a licensed attorney, you have to like maintain your license mm-hmm. by taking all of these credits. So, long story short, like it's like a frantic thing, like at the end of like you know, the reporting period, or right. when you're approaching, when you're like, oh my gosh, I gotta run. Now, now I'm at everybody's bar mm-hmm. association trying to get CLEs. Because if not, if you go through like City Bar, it's like $400 right. and nobody has money for that. Right. So, I was a member of the Asian. <laughs> Bar Association last year uh, for CLE credits. But also the
1: network of bar leaders. So I really appreciate that all of these bar associations are getting together mm -hmm. to help with diversity.
0: Yeah. So it's definitely, definitely, you know, it's on its way up. Team effort. Team effort. (laughs) But so let's talk about this Crane thing. What is this Crane's top 100 lawyers, female lawyers in New York City? Like, that's not like a really big deal. And I feel like we need to talk about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Honestly, um, I, I thought it was spam at the beginning. I thought they wanted me to buy their magazine or something like that. <laughs> I was to their emails, and some woman kept writing to me. Can I talk to you? Can I talk to you? And I'm like, no. Um, <laughs> but then I was just like, cranes. I I recognize the name. They sound like they're important. Let me let, let me call her. So I called her, and she said, you know, I just want to interview you about you know what you do as an attorney. Um, can we talk about it? And I said, sure. And I talked to her about the Arab American Bar Association, um, and my experiences as an attorney. And I guess they thought that was good enough, that I <laughs> but I, somebody nominated me. Okay. I'm not sure, but
0: reveal yourself at some point now that she's on the list, you can reveal yourself. <laughs>
1: um, but I was really honored because, you know, we were having a conversation earlier about how sometimes women of color have a hard time, you know, um, Sharing their accomplishments mm-hmm. is really hard for me sometimes to share the things that I've accomplished in life because I feel like I haven't accomplished much, but. I guess when, when I saw my picture in Koreans, I was like, maybe I did do something in life. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think we all struggle with that. And I feel like, I mean, what I'm trying to do moving forward is taking uh, ownership and credit for everything that I've actually done. I mean, doing so doesn't mean you're bragging, doesn't mean you're showing off. Like you've created something, you did something, like you accomplished something great. And even if it was like, you know, Could have been a team effort. But if you're the one who like started the team, you know, like I feel like we don't give ourselves enough credit. Um, So that's why I was like, we need to talk about this, you know, cranes list. I mean, top 100 female attorneys in New York City. You know, there's so many female attorneys in New York City and to be to even be listed on, you know, on a chart like that, I feel like that. that's most people's dreams. Like, you know, like, how do you even get on that? But I guess you have to, you know, be a leader. I didn't,
1: I didn't believe it until I saw it. I was like, well, I guess I accomplished something. I'm like, <laughs> Dad, remember when you wanted me to go to medical school? But well, guess what? I made it to Korea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I want to just go on and talk about, you know, you being a, you identify as being a Muslim American, correct? Mm-hmm. And And we all know, like, in different industries, there's always stereotypes. People always either pigeonhole you or make certain um, uh, remarks or they make certain, like, uh, they make certain opinions on you just because, you know, of what it is that you identify with, right? So I, you know, I, and as I was saying before we became, you know, I guess podcast live, right? (laughs) That, you know, when we talk about women of color, like automatically I always think about like black people. And it's not just even because I'm black. I think that if we were to survey 100 Americans Mm -hmm. and ask them, you know, first thing that pops into your head or first group of people you think of when you hear uh, people of color, women of color, they would say, you know, black people. Right. Mm -hmm. And then like you were saying, you know, Latinas would come or Latinos would come right after. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're the first non-black person that I've had on this podcast. So I kind of want to, I'm kind of interested in, in hearing a little bit about like your experiences identifying as a woman of color, because you are a woman of color and being a, a Muslim uh, woman attorney, mm-hmm. um, you know, talking about like how, how that's shaped your career, what challenges you faced mm-hmm. Um Especially, you know, that one incident that I keep referring to (laughs) that we'll talk about or that you can bring up as to, you know, because you were, you're Muslim, um, you know, a particular judge didn't think that you'd be ready. But we'll explain all this a little bit um, into, I guess, your spiel about like, you know, being a woman, like how do you identify as as um being a, a female attorney who happens to be a woman of color, who also happens to be a Muslim, especially in today's climate, mm-hmm. I would say. Like how, you know, take us through that.
1: Well, to give a little bit of background, I'm a little bit of brown and a little bit of yellow. So <laughs> I'm half Egyptian and half Filipino, but I've navigated most of my life as Arab because I, I don't have as many Asian features as my siblings. Right? Mm-hmm. So I pass as Arab and oddly as Latina um, a lot. Um, but I also wear the headscarf or, and or veil, which is also referred to as a hijab. So um, navigating through life, it's very obvious that I'm Muslim. And so when I walk into a room, it, it's very hard for people to miss me. I, I was probably the most memorable ADA um, in all of Brooklyn because I was probably the only one that looked like me. Mm-hmm. Everybody really remembered my name and they'd come up to me and I'm like, I don't know you, <laughs> but everybody knows who I am. Um, In terms of being uh, an attorney, I mean, let's just talk about my career path. When I graduated law school, I knew that I wanted to work for um, a DA's office and I interviewed with offices. And you'd be surprised at the kinds of questions that I've been asked. So I had worked at um, the Queen's DA's office for like a a summer back when I was in law school. And I talked to um, attorneys of color there. And there was a particular unit uh, within that office that was known to hire predominantly white males, and after that, white females, but predominantly white males that they didn't get along with people of color. They didn't really hire a lot of people of color in that unit. And so when I came around to interviewing, I interviewed with that unit. And so when I sat with the um, ADA that was interviewing me, he started talking about an ADA Muhammad. And I, I could For the life of me, I don't know why he felt like he needed to talk about ADA Muhammad every five seconds. He's like, ADA Muhammad seems a little bit strict. He observes this, this, that, and he does this, this, that. I'm like, I thought this was an interview about me. Why am I explaining my my faith to you? I'm just like, well, everybody has, you know, their own way of practicing their faith. I don't necessarily practice like ADA Muhammad and I don't do this and I don't do that. But most of the conversation centered around that. And then he asked me a whole bunch of questions that were standard. And I had prepared answers for them because I already studied um, those set of questions. And I never got a call back after that. People who worked with me in that office were just like, you didn't even get just one more round. And no, not, not a single round. They started asking around, like, why didn't she get at least one more round and they had no idea. But you know, the, the thing about being discriminated against is sometimes you can't, prove it. Mm You can't put your finger on it. But I know it happened. Um, And I know he asked inappropriate questions and I didn't get another interview. And you know what? They're lost again. (laughs) Um, But that also happened when I interviewed the Manhattan DA's office. There was a point where, um, I mean, I had gone to the highest round, which was really difficult to get to getting one interview is hard, getting three Mm -hmm. is harder. Um, By the time I got to the last round, The questions got a little bit more intense. And at some point, somebody dropped in a question about, because I am a bleeding heart and it comes off in my interviews sometimes. And, you know, if you're going to a prosecutor's office, they don't really want to hear about defendants. Mm -hmm. Um, So I brought a little bit of that. But there was a point where one of the ADAs turned to me and said, well, would you feel comfortable dealing with a case that would have a connection to terrorism? I felt like I had to look around the room and be like, (laughs) who's who's she talking to? "Did, Did anybody else hear that? Because- I'm pretty sure that that question is inappropriate. And I said, you know, I'm all about justice. I'm going to do my job the right way. Um, but if I was white, I'm pretty positive that that question would not have been asked. Um, Suffice so it to say, I did not get the position, but also you loss lost.
0: Yes, um, womp womp. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but the fact that reputable organizations or places like DA's offices can do that is really disturbing. And actually, um, I, I can't recall, I believe it was that a bunch of bar associations got together to talk about, you know, the criminal justice issues in um, district attorney's offices. And one of the biggest complaints was that there are no people of color, almost no people of color in leadership. And they actually did a breakdown statistically. And it was just like, you know, X number of black people in roles of leadership. And it was like 2% Latina. The numbers were so tragically Mm -hmm. low. We were trying to figure out a way to address that. Like, do we need to talk to DA's offices about their hiring practices? Like what's going Mm -hmm. on that People are not in positions of leadership. And we do need people of color in positions of leadership. We need to have diverse perspectives come to the table. Um, uh, But, you know, at that time, um, I think there was an article in the paper that was talking about um, I think the lack of diversity. I can't remember where, but the lack of diversity um, in district attorneys' offices, and that was a meeting. You know, trying uh, to address that. Um, I'm having one of my my, my <laughs>
0: You're
1: gonna have to bring me back on. To that.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, so I, I I mean, I didn't even know that part about the different um, interview processes yeah. in um, Queens, Manhattan DA's office, but. Talk about your experience at the Brooklyn D.A.'s office since that's where you, you work. Like what challenges did you face? What in, what inappropriate instances did you um, experience um, at, that you credit to you being, you know, a Muslim woman? OK,
1: well, I I mean, I in my observations while I was an assistant district attorney, I, I noticed that sometimes judges were just not Culturally or religiously sensitive. Like I felt like they needed training, and I believe that they've changed that recently and added that. Um, there was, we'll call him Judge Grumpy. It's not <laughs> too far from his name. I don't, I don't <laughs> anybody would know who he was. <laughs> uh, one day, uh, my case was called, and so my colleague was standing up on the on the case. And one of the questions that a prosecutor is usually asked is, "Are you ready to go to hearing and trial?" And so we prepare notes inside the file to say whether or not we're ready. And at that time I had indicated that I was ready to proceed to hearing and trial. It was a Friday. And so the judge said, are you sure ADHD is ready? And um, my colleague said, yes, she indicated in her notes that she's ready. He's like, are you really sure? And then he has this thing where he goes off. So that turns (laughs) off. so he, he, he went off the record and he asked my colleague, are you sure Weedar is ready? I know today is a Friday and I know that she is a Muslim. Are you sure she is ready? And he's just like, um, I'm pretty sure she's ready, Judge. She indicated that in her paperwork. And then he's like, can I talk to your supervisor? And then he called over the supervisor. Oh, my gosh. Said, is Weedar really ready? And then she looked at the notes and she's like, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that she's ready. Um, and he said, but are you sure? How can you be sure? And then, so she actually called me. I was sitting in my office and she said, Dweedar, are you ready for your case? And I said, yeah, I wrote it in my notes. She's just like, uh, I thought you knew that you were Muslim. Like, you know, the, when, when you were filling it out. Um, <laughs> and I, I was just so confused. She was just like, the judge wants to know if you're ready because he says that you're Muslim and today is Friday. I was like, uh, yeah, I prepared that beforehand. And I couldn't understand why he 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 actually made me bring my witness all the way down to court, which is not normally how judges do Mm things. particularly when a lunch break is coming. What they do is they shut down the court and then you can come afterwards with your witness. He insisted on having me appear with my witness. Like he didn't believe me. And I I was just not sure what to do with that. Um, But, you know, I, I didn't say anything about what happened. I only reported it to my supervisor, but a part of me had wished that I had said something, you know, to the chief judge, um, and and that actually inspired me to start thinking of ideas of well who do I need to write to and talk to about cultural and religious sensitivity yeah. training but i think or i've heard rumors that they've added that now i don't know if it's made a difference or not
0: i don't know if i've heard whether they have or have not but i'm 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 sure that it's if it hasn't happened yet it's in the pipeline mm-hmm. um Because I think that people are becoming more and more aware that there is a lack of sensitivity when it comes to the judges and how they either—it's not even just about like the witnesses and defendants that they deal with, but even with the with the attorneys. Like I find that you know what happened to you to be totally inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people might not think it's that serious, but the fact that you were challenging because at some point when you really think about it, he was challenging your credibility.
1: Exactly.
0: That's exactly what it was. Like, hey, a you're a liar. That's exactly what it is. And then the, the extent that he took, like, okay, the, the court partition wasn't enough. Now I need a supervisor. And then the supervisor has to come ask you. And it's all because your your name is Yasmin Dweedar, which I,
1: I mean, wouldn't- he's seen me before.
0: Yeah, he's seen you before. So he knows you have this hijab. So you have to automatically be Muslim mm-hmm. because only Muslims, I guess, wear head wraps, right?
1: I mean- Muslims aren't the only people.
0: That they're happy. not, but but Different
1: cultural practices some people fail.
0: But apparently that's, you know, that this one plus one equals two. and so therefore you had to be lying. And so I find that to be really interesting because, you know, those are experiences I think that are akin to a lot of, you know, to, to a lot of Muslim women who wear hijabs and who, you know, have like either Muslim sounding names. And so people just right off the bat, because of appearances or your name, will come to certain conclusions and discriminate or act in particular ways. And
1: sometimes people have had a hard time believing that I was a lawyer. I know that that happens to people. Yeah. Uh, particularly, you know... African American and Latinos. Yeah. I think they're descendants.
0: There's been many times where they were just like, "Um, this is for lawyers only. Mm
1: -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. Ma'am, sir. (laughs) (laughs) I'm holding a file though. I'm holding a file. (laughs) I'm wearing a suit. Mm -hmm. I have heels on. I'm not a lawyer. So, I mean,
1: mean, this is an aside, but like to show you the extent of how people think um, when they see me, the co op that I am currently in, there's a whole application process. And a part of it is that they have an interview with you. And I know that the questions that they asked and the conversations we were having were inappropriate, but I wanted the apartment so bad that I just put up with it. Mm -hmm. But they were asking inappropriate questions about, like, did your parents give you permission um, to apply for the co-op? Can you live here? Um, I'm sitting here. Yes. I'm (laughs) I'm of age. To live in it. And they're like, oh, this is so impressive. Your resume shows that you're highly educated you have a graduate degree and you're a lawyer well i'm sorry that i have so many degrees but yes i'm highly educated what did you think i was going to be but they had all of these assumptions and i think what they were envisioning in their head was that i was going to be some submissive um muslim female stay at home Mm -hmm. under my parents um control and I was just like, no, I've gone to school. I'm an attorney. They're like, wow, you're also very like well spoken, and you seem very active in the community. Like, and I'm just like, uh, yeah. What else did you expect? Yeah.
0: <laughs> the struggle, the struggle. <laughs> but it's it's good to hear, you know, that you know women of color as a whole like experience like these challenges, right? Because, like I said, for me you know, I'm, I'm used to the black experience because I'm black. So I know like what we go through, I know like our struggles. And sometimes we're like, Oh, you know, maybe some of the other people of color actually don't really experience Mm -hmm. struggle the way we struggle. Like they might, but it's not. And although, yeah, we do experience things that are different, Mm -hmm. but some struggles are just like every, you know, everybody's getting it right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, something like that, like with, um, what happened to you in the corporate would have never happened to me, but it's equally as offensive, right. And it's equally as bad as if the judge were to, I don't know, make some sort of African American stereotype against myself. So I think that sometimes, um, you know, with, with, the whole women of color thing, I just feel like we don't really know each other's different struggles and we don't necessarily seek to even like find out. Like I don't I don't sit down with, you know, my Muslim friends and say, so, you know, what are the, what struggles do you actually go through as a woman of color? Like I don't even, like you don't even really acknowledge like each other as like, you know, you're also a woman of color. Like what are your experiences? Or you don't go to the Latins and say, you know, as a Latina woman, like what, what have you experienced? So I find that you know, having these uh, conversations with people who are not exactly like you, but still fall under the same umbrella when mm-hmm. it comes to the world. Right. Because if you're not white, you're of color mm-hmm. uh, and just learning like what, you know, struggles and just hearing that, you know, it's it's really like a global movement. It's not like just, you know, compartmentalized or just, you know, akin to a particular group.
1: I mean, I can't say that um, I have the same exact experiences, like the black experience is different from the Latino experience, mm-hmm. the experience is different from the um Arab American and or Muslim experience um, uh, our struggles are slightly different like you you probably don't worry as much when you have to deal with the TSA and going mm-hmm. to the airport but I do mm-hmm. um, and I do this thing where I always opt out because I like to exercise my rights and like for instance I recently traveled to Texas and California and I decided to opt out and the woman asked me she's like do you want to do a private screening I was like oh my god I've never done that before yeah let's do that And she took me to another room and then another female had to appear. I was like, oh, so when you guys do this, two people have to be here? And she's like, yeah. I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Okay, cool. And then she's like, oh, I got to go get something. And she left me in the room alone with the other TSA agent. And I like to talk to people. So I turned to her I was like, I just do this for fun. And she just looked at me all serious. I was like, oh, no, that that probably probably wasn't good. (laughs) "Um, You know, I like to exercise my rights. And she just kept staring at me. And I was just like, God, they're probably thinking right now that you're you're like planning something. Mm-hmm. Or you might be a terrorist. I was like, because I'm an attorney. And she's like, oh, you're an attorney. Cool. What kind of law do you do? I was like, Whoa.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but even with that though, it's like yes the the experiences are different. But again, it's like wait, like you guys do actually experience stuff. You know what I mean? I feel like sometimes people just we we tend to forget that although the the experiences are different, the struggles are different. But it's still a struggle at the end of the day.
1: We experience trauma, but I think it's a different form of trauma. And I think our trauma is a little bit more recent. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're also a newer population. We don't have the same history here as Mm African-Americans or Latinos. Um, But, you know, post 9-11, Arabs, Muslims, South Asians, we were all just grouped as a whole brown people Mm -hmm. uh, to be feared. Um, And it's really traumatic even to date. Like, I block it out. Um, I don't watch TV because I can't watch the news. But there's something that's very traumatic about having to hear every single day. It's been how many years now? We'll say uh what is it, 17
0: Mm-hmm. Has it been? S-
1: yes, yeah, Almost almost seventeen yes, years yeah. of nonstop news coverage about how you are to be feared and you are a terrorist and people just hating on you and and nobody's stopping them. Like mm-hmm. I mean, if if you said something, you know, against an African American, or you said something against a Latino, there might be some uproar, but we've come to a place where people have just come to accept that it's okay to bash, you know, Arab Americans or Muslims or South Asians. And it's okay to profile them because you know what, guess what, our safety. And there were times like, you know, I'm sure African American males are always afraid when they're on the streets Mm -hmm. and interactions with police officers. For me, it depended on whatever was on the cover that day. If a Muslim female was featured on the cover of the Daily News, and it talked about a suicide bombing. If I'm sitting on the train and yeah. my hands are in my pocket, I'm like, no, maybe your hands shouldn't be in your pocket. Just take it out very, very slowly so you don't scare people. And then sometimes people will have their newspapers open next to you, and i will have something about jihad this, terrorism that, and they'll just talk out loud about you while you're sitting right there. Um, and so I have to read about it all the time, hear about it all the time, deal with people on the streets who don't understand the difference between Arabs and Muslims and that Islam is actually a peaceful religion. They haven't read anything about it. They're just learning from television, which is 99% of the time telling them to hate us. Mm -hmm. And so I just feel like someone that's hated a lot of the time. And when I'm approached um, by white people sometimes, I'm actually afraid because I'm not sure what they're going to say, especially if they're a stranger, because I've had encounters where I've met people on the streets that will just say all kinds of racist and offensive things. Um, and things that are really hurtful and I just now when I'm approached by strangers I'm just like what's going to come out of their mouth and if they're kind to me like oh thank god Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying yeah (laughs) but it's
0: I think you know I mean obviously I've been for me and I mean I should say obviously but I've been aware of like you know what's been going on like you know how Muslims and people and Arab Americans are are treated but you know, to kind of like actually like sit down and talk about like these like very real fears that you go through like on a daily basis, and and you and you're right, you know, African Americans, you know, I'm Haitian American, you know, we go through so much, you know, on a daily basis, but we've been going through it for like 400 years or however many years, but then it's kind of like you know this is what it is, but then like to actually see myself you know, in some of the situations that you just described, like it, it, it is kind of traumatic, right? Like not knowing who might now come after you or follow you off the train or, you know, or try to even like attack you because they're, you know, they're, they believe that you're somebody that needs to be attacked or make a report about you, right. Just because they saw you walking down a different route or whatever. So I could, I can definitely, um, Obviously, you know, I'm not Arab American or Muslim, so I can't say that. Oh, I definitely know um, how you feel. But I can imagine, in a sense, like where the trauma is coming from. And it's true. Like, you know, I have colleagues that we have these, you know, political conversations with. And just to see like people who you don't expect to hold certain biases and to have certain points of view. Like you think that this person's a lawyer, they're educated, like they would not think this way. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have people in the, like you expect maybe random people on the street. Cause you don't know their education level. You don't know their, their cultural sensitivity levels, mm-hmm. but when it's like your colleagues, your supervisors, people you work with that hold these like very racist, very classes, very, just like malicious like ideas and ideologies, and you're just like, how could you be an educated individual, my supervisor, and hold you know harbor these thoughts? So
1: I honestly think a lot of Arab um, American Muslim youth need therapy, mm-hmm. and sometimes I think I need therapy. I'm only okay right now because I honestly don't watch TV. I don't read the paper. I stopped reading comment sections. Mm-hmm. But if I do read an article, it can trigger something, for mm-hmm. me. and it'll send me into like a state of depression. It'll make my stomach turn. And so I've just made a conscious choice to block it all out so that I can be okay. But when I'm in those moments, I don't even know how to describe like how it feels. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've just consciously chosen to block it out just so that I, I don't have to deal with it, but I know it exists around me. I'm mm-hmm. just not looking at it.
0: Yeah. So we definitely covered some, yeah. some deep topics mm-hmm. here.
1: It was supposed to be a
0: little lighthearted. Like, let's talk about, you know, Crane. Let's oh, talk about Dweedar about as, a, as a whole. But we definitely got into, I think, some, just some, some really important topics. You know, I think, I think it was really great to have you on this episode as a non-Black woman, but a woman of color, um, and a Muslim woman, um, attorney at that. And just to talk about some of these things that, and I think it's caused, um, you know, just talking to you about your, your experiences caused me to maybe be a little more sensitive because although we are all minorities, you know, it's easy for, you know, me to, to, to like look in and say, you know, Do I have some of these? Do I also harbor some of these biases? Like, I feel like when you're not the group, right, that's under attack, like sometimes you don't necessarily process um, how it is that they're experiencing Mm -hmm. things and how it is that they're actually going about. Like you might be you might even find yourself being a little insensitive and not really knowing it because of just, again, like the hysteria, the climate and everything that's going on. So I think it's always good to kind of like. You know, check in with like the people that you know you know um that are either within a particular category, experiencing certain things, going through certain traumas, and actually like kind of now like saying, you know what like I need to maybe let me reevaluate like when I hear somebody making these types of comments, right about Muslim people or Arab people or people talking about you know just, just things that are in their own politics right now, like you know, there was that recent. I don't even know. There's so many things that pop up in New York City, but whatever the last terroristic or alleged terroristic event that happened, and so you know, I had a lot of my colleagues that were just saying a whole bunch of stuff that was just very ignorant, right? And you know, I think a lot of times, you know, what we all as Black and Brown people need to do, we do need to stick together and stand up for each other. Like, I'm not Arab, I'm not Muslim, but I'm also not going to sit here and tolerate Mm -hmm. my white colleague talking about, you know, oh, he's in in favor of the Muslim ban and all. other stuff. So I think that sharing experiences and being able to really, you know, empathize in a sense, it's like, all right, you know, when, when I hear these things that are going on, like I should be able to shut it down as well and Mm not one, not participate because sometimes listening to it and is, is you participating, you might not be agreeing with the person and Mm -hmm. be like, I can't believe this person saying that, but when you're letting that person like vent out and air out their frustrations about Mm -hmm. the administration and how they're so relaxed on border control and, you know, Mm -hmm. letting everybody in like, that's you participating Mm -hmm. and, and kind of like enabling them in a sense, right. To continue their like propaganda. So,
1: I mean, I will say I appreciated people like you and the other women of color that I worked with in the DA's offices, because I could share what I was going through. And there's just such a sense of relief to sit in a circle that understands where you're coming from. And Mm -hmm. even though our struggles are not identical, we share similar struggles and we understand that, that, that not in you know, mm-hmm. the anxiety and the hurt. Yes, and so it's just really great to be able to turn to another woman of color and just talk to her and just vent and share our experience.
0: Yeah, and just be candid. I think you know, I you know, for another episode, obviously, but you know, just being transparent, I think, is like one step in kind of overcoming a lot of the challenges we face as women of color. Because sometimes I feel like women think that they have to kind of like pit against each other. Like you'll hear the story about like my supervisor, who's the black, a black woman has been like the worst supervisor ever. Like she treats me the worst or they, you know, and sometimes it's like, you know, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you know, like, I know people have different tactics on how to like toughen people up, but I've heard so many situations where there's like the hater, right? There's instead of the person who's like there to help you, they're there to sabotage you instead. And so Mm -hmm. there's that whole theory that women can't work together and women of color are even worse. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I dare say that that's not true. You know, I've been in so many circles where women have actually been more than, women of color have been more than, you know, um, happy to like share their experiences. Mm-hmm. I think it's just all about the approach, but I think transparency, you know, sharing your story, sharing your struggle, letting people know that, yeah, I'm a supervisor, this is how I got here, mm-hmm. not holding back and saying, you know, I also experienced these, you know, um, you know these fears as well too, but yet I'm still here. Here's how I overcome it. I think all those things are necessary. And, you know, it starts with conversations like this.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so next time we're gonna have to have a more light hearted hilarious compliment. yeah this one wasn't this one
0: wasn't funny, this was this one funny. funny. <laughs> you know it's crazy. A funny one the funny we, one's gonna come up. you know what we're gonna yeah we have to do a funny one serious. I don't understand how it got That's here
1: <laughs> it's so These true we were yeah we were supposed to like
0: but it's we need to have right. these two, you know, there's, there's a time for laughter, which is usually 95% of the time. And then there's also serious topics that we still need to talk about, but we can't be as funny, funny with them. Right. We can't be as like, haha with them because I mean, then it's, it's like,
1: sure we're missing
0: Jaleesa. yes, yeah. If Jaleesa was here, but then Jaleesa, I th- you know what? They're probably, yeah, there might've been maybe a couple more jokes, <laughs> um, but that's because we would have went off on tangents.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. but, but really it back. thank you so much. Dweedar, as I call her the office trains us to call people by their last names and although I haven't been there in two years I still call people by their last names That's all
1: my gay friends still call yeah so
0: names. thank you for having me you're welcome you're <laughs> welcome and we definitely will do another one because like you said you know this is not as funny but we have to talk about serious topics too it can't always be funny but I think we have a couple of laughing laughing points here I think the Judge Grumpy thing might might get some people laughing those who have identified Judge Grumpy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, but this is a wrap for season two, episode three. Now, um, definitely tune in to Frida's World podcast. We are available on Apple, Stitcher and SoundCloud. I feel like I'm always having to remember and it's only on three platforms, <laughs> but definitely follow us if you want to know more about the podcast or more about Frida Women NYC in general. You can find us on Twitter. Instagram, and Facebook. The handle is Frida Women NYC, F-R-E-E-D-A Women NYC. And also... Uh take a Mosey on to our website, nyc and shop for the latest workplace accessories. I keep saying workplace, but you can actually, I've worn brooches to, to church, <laughs> to funerals, unfortunately. I've worn them to weddings. So basically accessories that can like uplift your outfit and make you feel good. Cause it's all about the look good, feel good effect, right? And I feel like as women of color, especially, we go through so much. And sometimes you just want to like feel good, even though you don't actually feel good, but just looking good, like kind of gives you that spirit. So mm-hmm. if you're interested in feeling good about yourself, <laughs> go to the website, make a purchase and also find out about our social justice um, initiatives, our social impact initiatives, as well as, um, you know, our weekly blogs that are posted there that talk about different issues like this, some heavy, some funny. Um, but yeah, thanks again for tuning in and thank you for coming, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. See you next week, guys.